Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Streming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. Folks, this week I've got Lisa Gunter, PhD, CBCCKA. She's an assistant professor at Coastal Carolina University, where she directs the Laboratory for Animal Behavior and Welfare. She's a dog trainer researcher extraordinaire whose work centers on the welfare and behavior of companion animals with a special focus on our interactions with them. Researchers with strong training and behavior backgrounds are a rare breed, and I was lucky enough to sit down with her to discuss the role of research in the dog training profession. Check her out, among other brilliant minds, in canine science at the Canine Science Symposium in May of 2023. Details in the show notes. Welcome to the podcast. Will you share your first and last name and your pronouns? Sure. Uh, Lisa Gunter, she, her, hers. Lisa, today I thought we would break down a paper on which you are the second author. The paper is The Click is Not the Trick, The Efficacy of Clickers and Other Reinforcement Methods in Training Naive Dogs to Perform New Tasks. The authors are Rachel Gilcrest, Lisa Gunter, Samantha Anderson, and Clive Wynn, and I will link the paper in the show notes. My goal is not really to explain the findings of the paper, although we're going to, but rather how dog trainers might use a paper like this one to enhance their best practices. So can you briefly describe what the paper is about? Sure. And thanks so much for having me on and being interested in this paper. Um, I first, of course, want to do a huge shout out um, that um, this work um, and its you know many study uh, many experiments were carried out by Rachel Gilchrist. She was a graduate student. Um, and she is a graduate student at Arizona State University, and I'm just incredibly proud of the work she did. I reread the paper for our um, episode today, and um, I think she pulled off a Herculean task um, in all these studies. So I just want to give a shout out to her. And if anyone is really interested in the paper, um, to please reach out to her. I think that's something that sometimes folks think like, oh, an author doesn't want to hear that or something. But we love fan mail. So please fan mail her, even if (laughs) even if it's like a question that's maybe a little bit more of a uh, opinionated comment, that's okay too. But yeah, so with regards to um, this paper, it takes a look at kind of three different ways that we can provide reinforcement to dogs during training. And in particular, we worked with when the paper says naive dogs, we're looking at puppies, and we're looking at puppies uh, in the animal shelter. Anyway, in terms of how the study was set up, we have like three different studies in it. One is looking at a really just classic behavior, a sit and a stay, and looking at at looking at differences in uh, performance when dogs were uh, delivered food alone, provided a verbal stimulus paired with food or a sound of a clicker with food. So that's the setup for the first study. And I think like any really good paper, and I, and I say this not being the first author, like I, I got to tag along for the ride, <laughs> and I thank Rachel for that, is that it's an iterative approach, because I, I think that we can all appreciate that we can't answer the questions we're deeply interested in with just one study, and honestly, even with one paper. That's just, I, I think that's foolhardy, and probably leaves us a bit un, unsatisfied. So first paper, we're looking at a sit and stay behavior with increasing duration. And then in the second behavior, 
behavior in the second study, um, we kind of take it up a notch. And remembering that all of these studies kind of play upon different components that perhaps a dog um, trained through clicker training may uh, perform better. That's the like you know, as someone that uses clicker training, you know, that's what we were trying. That's what we were interested in is like where are these uh, could we set up experiments that kind of get at the heart of where uh, clicker training could exe- could uh, succeed um, and 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 the dogs could perform at higher levels. So uh, in the second uh, study, we were taking a look at teaching the dogs a novel behavior, touching their noses to a cone, um, and then um, moving away from that cone um, and seeing if the dogs um, would still be able to perform that behavior. So including that distanced com- component, right? The first one, you've got duration with a uh, pretty simple behavior. Now we've introduced a novel behavior and we're moving distance away you know, um, from the object. Um, and then the, the third one um, is looking at that specificity component that we hear a lot about in clicker training. Um, and that was done through an a- array of wooden blocks uh, that the puppies had to touch initially quite nonspecific, just touch something. And then we got incre- mm-hmm. increasingly more specific over time with the puppies. I've been excited about clicker training since the first time I saw it, which was, I don't know, like sometime in the, probably for me, sometime in the like 90s, I think I saw Gary Wilkes on television. And that was probably my first time seeing it. And Mm -hmm. I got really excited about it. And so fast forward a very long time I don't like to think about how long ago the 90s were so me neither but like all of the yeah but all of the stuff coming out now like a lot of like shows I really like I'll be listening to the music and I'm like damn you the, uh, oh I know it, oh it's like stop making this for me I'm not that old oh gosh oh, I feel you I know I was I was like I was like wow the grocery store really plays like great music now and then I was like oh and then I was like, oh, that's because I'm old. <laughs> so funny. Anyway, back to science. So y'all found that, and this will be shocking to everyone, positive reinforcement is effective. But it's effective whether you use a novel bridge, a verbal bridge, or no bridge. Like you guys, that's basically what you, is that right that you demonstrated that? Yeah. So I would say what are, like, how would I explain the kind of findings in kind of a bite-sized chunk? I would say in the in the first study, we actually found that in this sort of behavior, not sort of, in this behavior of the dog sitting um, and increasing mm-hmm. the duration next to their purse, to the handler, to uh, next to Rachel, that um, in fact uh, the dogs were able to, uh, the puppies were able to um, achieve a longer duration of their stay with just primary reinforcement alone. So that was it the finding of the first. That's so- Sorry to interrupt you. When I read this paper first, the first time, I was excited about that finding too because I also have found that, like, if I'm training mm-hmm. that yeah. sort of durational behavior, I like to just pay it. I like to just pay for it. And it tends to happen really nicely for me. And then that's where we get we get really complex because now I've actually trained a different bridge that indicates to the animal that I'm bringing reinforcement to them and that they should mm-hmm. not move towards it. Mm, and now yeah. that's what I use. Now that's what I use to teach a stay mm-hmm. versus except for, and this is where we get so super nerdy, except for when I want the stay to be like a coiled spring. And when mm. I want the stay to be like a coiled spring, I use a terminal marker that leads the dog to kind of burst out of it towards reinforcement. So oh, all yeah. of this stuff is geeky and interesting and I love it. And so you found with the sit stay behavior that mm-hmm. no bridge 
So just delivering food to the right is right. And does, and and I think that like any folks, um, listening to this are like, yeah, like the dog's next to me. What is, what is it going to do? Like it's a, it's a, it's a sippy, it's a sit. Like it, it is nothing terribly complex. I mean, it's so uncomplex that we had to have a rule out in case they just did it. So in the beginning of, of the study, so I don't think dogs are like spontaneously like, oh yes, I, I would like to uh, touch that cone. I mean, like they will, like, cause it's novel, but sure. it's not, it's nothing like a sit. So yeah. So in this, in this uh, first experiment, it's just like, yeah, idiot, just give them the food, like get it to them. Um, especially when they're right next to you. And so in my mind, right. And, and I think some of the, and I just kind of want to point out too that you know one of there was I think a lot of uh, work and again this is this is all Rachel I I, I take zero credit um, again I just go along for the ride is that you know one of the things that you that could be a criticism in this work or like a hey well did you look at this right is really taking a look at the delay that animal that these puppies had between hey like in these different groups, because perhaps that delay, right, is, is, is something that is influencing their behavior. And so, so she took a look at, in this first experiment, actually she did it in all of them, is how much time did it take between you uh, doing the behavior and you receiving the reinforcement. And what we actually found is that, that the dogs that were in the primary reinforcement group, on average, remember, this is nothing about the animals are randomly assigned. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we don't, um, so we're looking at dogs, you know, um, differently, uh, or we're working with different dogs, but when we're taking a look at how quickly they got the food, we find in that first experiment that it was actually the primary reinforcement group that had the longest delay. So they mm-hmm. were hanging out and uh, for about three, you know, three seconds before they got their food, whereas Clicker had a delay of 2.5 seconds and the verbal secondary 2.6 seconds. So oh, wow. that kind that's of, so, so uh, super close. Could you, I mean, like honestly, same. yeah, that's basically the same. Yeah. And also like freaking kudos to her that she was able to yes. have such like, <laughs> I mean, I, like what a great trainer. What a great trainer. Yeah, Child. I know. I yeah, I know. I was yeah. like, props, Way girl. Go, like, and so how str- like kind of how interesting, I don't even say strange, how interesting that, mm. you know, if we were thinking about that delay and how it might influence performance, why then is the primary reinforcement group the ones that had the longest delay to getting their food by only like half a second, but still sure. are performing still, the that's best? A, that's a long time in training. Sure. Truly. Yeah. And they're yeah. they're performing the best. And that's in the sit stay iteration. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What about Correct. the cone? What about the cone target iteration? Yeah. So you weren't off when you were saying like, okay, you guys didn't really find much. Um, because sorry, like that's <laughs> condensed um, and said way nicer. But um, <laughs> but when we take a look at um, our second and third studies, yeah, we're not seeing differences between the groups, and. That to us was surprising because I think that one of the things that I sort of love about science is that we're just curious. 
We want to know how does this like world work that that we live in, and how does this technology that we use all the time, how does it work? Where where is it beneficial? Where is it not? So I feel like this was neither a hit piece nor a love letter to clicker training. Right. It was simply like how do you, I want to know more about you and how this technology can help us train train dogs. So, but yeah, I think that and and that it was sort of surprising. I think taking a look, for example, um, at the cone uh, or the second experiment where we used a cone. And I think that one thing, if we were to go back in time, and even though um, I was taking a look at the, yeah, we had like like 20, 75. 25. Yeah, yeah, we had like seven, seven. Yeah. Yeah. So these are like not small studies, but. 75 um, do- again, Rachel. Rachel did all of this training. Yes. That was her. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Way to go, yeah, and, and these are all different <laughs> groups in every single experiment. So, and I think in the first study we had over a hundred dogs, so or hundred puppies. So that was amazing. I think if we were to go back into a time machine and take a look at that second experiment, we did have sort of questions that we couldn't parse out between the sort of shaping procedure of the cone and the distance. And had we had more puppies in the study, we could have taken a look at that, and maybe there was something there in the cone um, in the learning of, uh, or the nose touching to the cone that could have been kind of sure. hot, you know found had we had yeah, we had more all kinds of things that we can yeah. we can look at but this does surprise mm-hmm. me too and I can I can hear people kind of screaming out that using a marker signal or a bridge is crucial if the training task is complex mm-hmm. and or more complex than the ones mm-hmm. in your design so oh yeah. Talk mm-hmm. talk about the design a little bit and kind of because I think that that's certainly going to be a criticism. They're going to say, mm-hmm. "Okay, cool. Of course you can train." Although I do think the nose touch to the cone is to me that feels solid. Like that that was a good choice to me. Yeah. Like that's, that's yeah. a, that's a decent And it's shown choice. yeah, and it's yeah. shown up in other literature. I think that that's the other thing to kind of always try to keep in mind is like you know some relevance to other papers and you know and I want to say that this idea didn't sort of just come out of thin air for us Um, it was an idea that had been brewing for a long time originally this uh, study began at University of Florida and so the paper that came out the I think it was the Dory Blandina Udell paper see here I want to give a shout out to them because of course they're fabulous and and um, um, we love their work. Yeah, the Dory Blandina Udell paper. That was began, began as an undergrad project as well at University of Florida. And they published it like the year before before we published our paper. Um, but that work began like years before. And so that's why actually, you know, you kind of see puppies and training with these three different groups in that first study is because they're both based on this kind of, that Blandino paper, um, that mm-hmm. Blandino project as an undergraduate, that was sort of the sort of nexus or the idea that um, brought us to the, to doing this this work. It was, it was like, oh, that was interesting. Could we uh, replicate it um, in our lab at ASU or, you know, with our group at ASU and also kind of take a look at the methods, maybe tighten them up a little bit or do things based as trainers that we were interested in, like little tweaks to the design um, to try to help sort of, I don't know, provide for us more confidence in. Yes. And I do think that's something that lay people or dog trainers in general who are consuming this kind of work maybe mm. don't realize is that 
typically like this isn't just out of thin air. Like we're not just like all <laughs> sitting down and being like, I know <laughs> a nose target. Like we're looking at other papers that have been mm. done. We are looking at, we're leaning on other things that have been done. You're using, you know, there's, there's a method here. It's not just, you know, let's just put behaviors, a bunch of behaviors on cards <laughs> in a bowl and you guys can just pull it out. And also yeah. looking at the, looking at the original, looking at the paper that we're talking about, the, in experiment three, we're talking 90 dogs. Mm-hmm. Three groups of 30. Mm-hmm. And then um, it says each were shaped to emit a nose targeting behavior ab- upon an array of wooden blocks with task difficulty increasing throughout testing. Mm-hmm. And again, no statistically significant differences between the groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that one was sort of, you know, when we go, you, you know, just to go back for one second, like the cone, right? Building mm-hmm. on other work that had been done already. Um, I think. Um, I think the work by, I believe it's Smith and Davis. I believe Smith and Davis had worked with dogs and we're looking at a cone. I have to go back. But anyway, right. So that's kind of where we got the idea for that one. And also, like you said, having, I have a background in training. I, before I went to graduate school, I trained dogs. I worked in animal shelters training dogs. So the cone was like, oh yeah, I, I, I used to, you know, train a tricks class. Like, oh yeah, cone's going to be great. Um, yes, and we yeah. worked, you know, it's like sweet, awesome. And, and that was really fun to put the shaping procedure together for that. And I think, I mean, for anyone that's out there, I do think that it isn't appreciated how much sort of flexibility and creativity that we have in training, that in a, that in a scientific study, you really do have to keep it the same for every single mm. subject. You know, that doesn't mean that they have the same experience. So if you're using a criteria that they have to reach like, you know, three successive successful trials, and then they move up to the next level, and then, you know, you can have that sort of ladder approach to, you know, moving up and down that can be individual for that animal. But at the end of the day, you know, you have to even be, you have to be careful that when you, you know, you reinforce the behavior and then you toss a piece of food away so that they can go out of that area and reset for the next trial, that you're systematic and how, what if they don't come back to you? You know, how often do you shout out to them and be like, puppy, 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 and come over and let's play again. And like, you know, all of those things that I think in training, we everyday training, we have, we allow ourselves flexibility that we're not the same, you know, treating them in the same way. But uh, scientific study, we, we don't have that flexibility, which, mm-hmm. you know, I think, and sometimes is a detriment, I think, you know, totally. but, right, like, but at the same time, we have to keep you know, everything as as similar as possible so that we can really try to understand, you know, the phenomenon that we are intending to and not attributing an effect to something else that maybe that we may not be realizing is influencing our results. Yes. And so this is where one of the criticisms, because basically the reason we're having this conversation today Mm, is because of the fact that I see trainers feeling like they get to like weaponize a study if it says what they believe. Mm. And, mm. Th- and then also really just say that any study that goes against what they believe is garbage and the people who did it are garbage and nobody's good at anything. Can we sure. just, nobody can say that this trainer carrying out these tasks, Rachel Gilchrist, isn't good at what she's doing because I've trained a lot of dogs and I cannot say I've seen, t- I've trained two like the exact same ever. Like <laughs> I, I've trained a lot of dogs to do 
Yeah. For instance, um, weave poles. Like, I compete in agility. I've worked with a lot of dogs to train them. Weave poles, that is a very complex, tough behavior chain that they need to learn. I have never mm -hmm. trained it the same way twice. Mm. And if you tasked me with training it the same way, with, uh, I don't 90 dogs? Are you kidding? I'm not even sure that I could. So <laughs> you don't get to say... Well, this happened because she wasn't good enough at the clicker training or, or what you really don't get to say that because again, because of the, mm -hmm. the limits imposed by the design, you, it has to look the same. And also even, which is not true. Even if you wanted to say garbage trainer, right. why would it affect, <laughs> why would it impact clicker training more than providing primary reinforcement or a verbal right. marker? Right. So I think that that is one of the things that you can certainly have criticisms because absolutely no paper is perfect. But yeah. I think the follow up to those sort of if you have a criticism is what in what way would it adversely affect or benefit one group over the other? And I, and I think that that's in a, it, that's kind of the um, I um, you know, some of the things that I talk with my students about these sort of uh, constructive criticisms that we can have about science is absolutely, this is where we get into really good conversations, get into the meat of the things, absolutely. But um, how could you change it? Even if you saw, you know, and what can we do to, to address uh, design issues where one group may be adversely affected or, you know, um, um, positively benefited by it? And so... Like I kind of just hinted at, a dog trainer who's mm -hmm. opposed to the use of clickers or mm. other markers mm -hmm. in training mm -hmm. could, in theory, kind of hold up this paper as proof that they're right, while mm. a clicker trainer could say the study sucks and can't be trusted. And, then, and this is what happens all the time when it comes to research that is then spread about the dog training community. Sure. What I, I'm going to ask you this knowing that neither of us know the answer. What is the solution? Where, how can we stop? How can we stop talking about it this way? Like, how can it, how can it stop mm. being, see, I knew I was right or, sure. well, they're stupid because I'm right. Like, <laughs> I think that we have, I think that this attitude is like across the board in so many different ways that it's sure. kind of cultural and we're not going to get there. But like, what do we do about this? What's the solution? Mm, okay. Well, I mean, I think though. I mean, I think one thing to just step back and taking a look at at, at this at this paper. I mean, I think one particular takeaway is probably whatever you do, get the food to them quickly. Um, you know, as quickly sure. as you can. Right. That's yeah. probably a pretty good takeaway. But I, I don't think the paper also though is indicating that. Um, is, is, it's neither for nor against. I think right. that, you know, and I think that that's something to think about just because you don't find evidence of something um, and also there are no differences. I think in some ways you probably could continue doing what you're doing because it's, it's right, we're not seeing one performing more poorly than the other. Right. We're not seeing one group performing better. I mean, except for in that first experiment, which I think if the dog's next to you, just feed them. That, that seems like good advice just in training mm -hmm. in general. Um, we want to be, you know, I think uh, pay, pay often. But I, I think that kind of to your question about, well, what, you know, like, what do we do about this? And, and, and I think, I think it's challenging because, you know, we, we, we have, you know, this trouble with confirmation bias and 
and we're looking for things that um, support uh, support what we do. And and I think you know we I think we take a step back um, with regards to to this question and say, well, this doesn't mean. And I, and I actually think that you know my sort of takeaway on this like my my opinion um really truly my opinion right not necessarily supported by data is that the way in which these technologies work probably has a lot more to do with us and how we we provide them than than the actual technology itself so you know whether using the clicker or or using a verbal marker or providing the food that it 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 likely has something to do with you know how it you know with clicker training how it changes our behavior and maybe there's something there and that hasn't been explored a handful of studies that have have taken a look at, at dogs trained in different types of training classes and things like that but um you know what i'm curious about is how that clicker having that you know little noise maker in your hand changes your behavior and you become more attentive to the dog because it's context setting for you it says this is the way I act when I have this piece of technology in my hand and and that to me I think if it's if if the way in which if there is some sort of benefit of clicker training um, that to me is just as powerful and impactful is the actual technology itself, um, you know, being different or, or having this uh, differentiated effect because um, this is a two-way street when training our animals. So if it changes us, why, why, you know, that's worthwhile too. I'm not saying it does yet. We don't know, but I think that to me, yeah. I'm very curious about. I'm really curious about that too. And I'm curious about that in all of the kind of, you know, any research that might be done or any research that might be, that might exist already in regards mm-hmm. to maybe other tools, like maybe an electronic collar, for instance, Sure. what, mm-hmm. what effect does the tool have on the person? And can we look, <laughs> can we look deeper at that? And so mm-hmm. I think that, you know, what you're saying is, is that the solution is to help kind of foster a culture of more curious people, Uh, right? Absolutely. Less, less dogmatic, more curious. When I read this paper rather than bristling and saying, but I feel like a clicker is best and superior and should have, that should have been demonstrated Mm -hmm. rather than that, getting curious about what the paper does say Mm -hmm. about what it doesn't say. And kind of to understand that, like, that's what science is for is, I mean, don't you, don't you feel as a scientist, you feel like the role, the role of science is to breed more curiosity. It's not about like having the, all the answers to everything. (laughs) Oh, oh my goodness. No. I mean, I, you know, I, I think I'm just a terribly curious person. I'm, you know, um, probably, you know, much to my detriment sometimes. I, I, I want to know how the world works. And especially when it, when it comes to dogs, I, 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 do the, I do this work, I do this research because I want to improve their lives. I, I, I want things to be a little bit better for them. Um, and that, I mean, that's why a lot, you know, oftentimes I'm focusing on work in the shelter. But at the end of the day, you know, many, many, many dogs contact animal, you know, contact dog training in this country, around the world. Um, and here in the U.S., it's a a, you know, pretty unregulated industry, mm. which is, you know, 
you know, I, I remember training in San Francisco and I was always really happy when anybody found me, like not because I was excited about, about getting another client. Like I had a ton of those that wasn't it, but I was like, wow, there's a lot of folks you could have ran into and I'm not going to hurt your dog. And I think that that, that to me was something, you know, I, I don't think I'm um, the most technical trainer. I'll, I'll certainly own up to that, but I am pretty darn creative and I really love people. And um, at the end of the day, I want people to have good relationships with their dogs. And so when I sort of then kind of, you know, going back to this idea of uh, the role, the role of science in our, in our industry, I, yeah, I think it's, you know, we have to kind of be learning about what has sort of been studied. How can that inform our practices? I think any place that we can be evidence informed or, you know, evidence based, I think wherever we can is a good thing. And I also think, though, that, you know, that sort of interest as a practitioner to kind of always be learning. I think that that is a great way to be in an industry that's all about the animals learning, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, shouldn't we also be, you know, striving? And I also think it's just sort of great to be in that space because it definitely has, allows us compassion for our learner when we're learning something new for the first time, whatever it is, maybe it's science and reading a paper that's tough, or it could be a new yoga pose and you know, it's tough and, um, it, it can be frustrating. Um, and how do we take those experiences and have compassion for our learner? And, you know, I, I hold the same thing to science when I think about, you know, my classes, when I'm talking about papers with, with my students and I, you know, what did you like about the paper? What didn't you like? And if you have a criticism, okay, that's, that's all right. We can, we can handle criticism if it's constructive. What, what would you do instead? And I do think we have to really get to that place that if we're thinking about science and um, studies that are in, you know, our field and um, instead of kind of, you know, being very ideological, ideological and being, oh, you know, this isn't my camp or the other camp or whatever. um, I I think it would behoove us to really um, have more conversations and think about if we have criticisms about what has been done, what could we do in these designs um, to address those concerns and perhaps those are ways in which you know future studies could be improved Um, science is this iterative approach again we can't get everything out of one experiment one study five studies you know it's the world is complex but i think it's a good starting point and you are involved too in kind of because you are a dog trainer and a scientist and so like (laughs) merging those worlds Mm -hmm. and bringing these things together and kind of bringing bringing dog training into science and bringing science into dog training these are things that Mm. you do and so what is your i guess what is your hope for for instance i mentioned at the top the canine science symposium sure what is your hope for events like that Well, I mean, when I when I think about events like ours, like the Canine Science Symposium, that began when I was just a baby scientist before graduate school, and um, I um, had this opportunity to present some of the work that I started before grad school at a community college. That paper, which was my first paper about breed labeling, I teach a statistics class, and I recently found it. Um, in the statistics book, textbook that I teach in, and I was so blown away. I was like, 
oh my gosh but and not as not as a like woohoo like I'm in a textbook whatever but it was the fact that like I could share with my students my statistics students that hey you know like whatever you start right now whatever you do there's a possibility for an impact you know that don't be afraid to take advantage of that don't be afraid to be bold and be curious and and see what the world has out there for you but anyway that was some work that I had started in between um my bachelor's degree and graduate school, which was a really long time. And so I, I went to, I, I went to APD, the APDT conference and they had poster session um, there. And I was also thinking about graduate school at the time. That's why I was doing this type of work. And I just came in contact with some really great scientists. And a lot of those folks ended up being um, from Clive's lab. And I've known Erica Fierbacher. She's a collaborator of mine for like over 20 years. We've known each other for a really long time. We met in the animal shelter. And so... Um, so it was really as uh, um, it came from a place of these folks are doing really cool work, and I want dog trainers, animal shelter folks to know about it because at the time, you know, we're on our I think ninth year now with like two years for COVID, so over a decade of doing the symposium. You know, it was a lot of dog work was going on, but not nearly as much as now, and. And it was just a way to like, hey, if you're a practitioner, I just want you to have access to this. Like, you know, I Mm -hmm. am a first generation college student. Certainly no one in my family has a PhD or a scientist. And I really want to kind of break those sort of barriers about what it means to be in science, to access science, and that link between sort of practitioners and science. To me, like, we are all part of this ecosystem, equally important. Like, my questions are so informed by the animal shelter, so informed by dog trainers and what what they experience. So to me, like, it it is a real, like, back and forth. Um, And so it was really a way to, again, have this opportunity that folks could get together, hear about work, ask questions, really like not on some big stage that you can't possibly approach them afterwards and have a conversation, but really something where you can run into them and ask them questions and um, have those opportunities. And so I was training at the time in San Francisco and it started from, you know, just a few folks to, you know, we're having another year at the San Francisco State University and, you know, so many more people than I ever imagined wanting to get together and hearing about science. And so that to me, I, I think I'm always going to be a huge advocate for science communication and really um, working hard to make our work approachable. Um, I think that that's something that, you know, when I'm in class and talking to, talking with students about papers and, you know, they're they're put off by a paper because of the way it's written. And I have to explain mm-hmm. to them, well, there's this whole like history and there's this, there's this like, um, uh, there's this way we do things that, but once you get to it, you know, aren't the methods actually really cool and actually straightforward once right. you get through all the words, right. you know, and right. um, that bums, that bums me out sometimes that they're put off by it, that they might have a hard time accessing what the, you know, what the actual kind of data results, what, what's interesting about it. That, you know, that to me, this, that the way in which um, we can, help science be more approachable um, and make sure we're making time because at the end of the day if folks aren't benefiting from what I'm doing and animals aren't benefiting from what I'm doing honestly there's really no point in me doing what I do like I'll be like I'm curious person but I'm not in it for myself like I I think all of us like in this really absolutely corny way like I'll, I'll just speak for myself like in an absolutely corny way 
I want to make the world a better place. And I think that that's through, you know, um, I think that that's through science. That's one part of it, um, but also communicating it so those that can use it have access to it. I think that that's so real, Lisa, because science not being accessible to, I'll put in quotations, normal people is, it's a huge problem. It's a problem Mm -hmm. that exists right now. It's a problem Mm -hmm. that isn't going to go away. But if we can have better science communication, which is something Mm -hmm. I'm always excited about. I love to have people like yourself on the podcast who can really easily talk to people who don't have a PhD and really (laughs) easily explain things. Um, I, I love that, and I, I absolutely, as a person who, I just have a bachelor's degree, when I try to read a paper, and it is really, really tough to read, I would love, instead, to attend the poster session and just hear about it, and speak mm-hmm. to the person about it, and yep. having it be more accessible like that is such a big deal, so I didn't prep you for this question, so I apologize, but here we go. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I'm like so I'm like oh my god <laughs> she's sweating everyone um yeah seriously let's say let's say you know fast forward let's say that we've actually made science accessible to the dog training community at large mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. let's say we haven't actually you know forced dog training to become only something that exists in academia because mm. truly I see it as kind of two things are happening. We've got academia and then we also have the trade of it. And Mm -hmm. as we get further and further, as as we get closer and closer to regulating this industry, which Mm -hmm. I think we are getting closer, I see that split almost happening more and more. Mm -hmm. So if we can actually make the person who is just literally in the dirt every day with the dogs have really good easy access to the people who are producing studies replicating studies in the lab Mm -hmm. what happens then like what does dog training look like if (laughs) a future exists in which there is a bridge between these people that is easy to cross Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, to me, I think like a missing piece of of it, right, is that we have the work that we're doing, like Rachel's work, which is like kind of taking these very applied questions, right, and um, taking them uh, you know, they're, but they're still done like in a very experimental setup, very controlled. And then, like you said, we have all the way down with, you know, doing the work where we get to be super flexible and creative. And like, there's this continuum, I feel like, um, or actually maybe more like this, let's do it like this. And so not, not down across. Um, but I think what, where we hold that sort of piece in the middle is more programs master's level programs that allow practitioners to become scientists um, but doing it in a way you don't have to be make you know you don't have to you know have a PhD I don't think that that's for everyone I didn't even think that was for myself much less being a professor that is so weird to me but I, I do think that Right now, you can certainly get to continuing education from a lot of amazing sources, and I don't, I don't want to discount that. I mean, the Canine Science Symposium, in fact, is, is is part of that. But I think, in terms of helping foster 
a really holistic understanding of, of everything that's, you know, the things that are out there, how we change behavior, etc. I think, I think myself included in this, I trained dogs before I went to graduate school. Graduate school didn't teach me about training dogs. I'll, I'll be totally honest about that. Like, did I learn a lot that I that I apply? Yes, absolutely. But I was training dogs before graduate school, so I I don't want to discount anyone who has that. That's not my interest at all. I'm, I'm not like that. But I think that there's a lot of different ways to get continuing education, and sometimes it's great, and other times it's not. And I think that it, it, it's it's hard. I think as a practitioner, you know, even signing up to go somewhere, you don't know. Okay, is this training going to be awesome, or am I going to get there? And I'm like. Oh crap, like, you know, already knew this or wow, I'm not comfortable with this, even though you do all your homework. Mm -hmm. And I do think that thinking about ways in which we can create certificate programs at undergraduate level, we can create like, you know, working professional master's programs. To me, that's sort of the, you know, that can be done over several years, whatever, it doesn't matter. But really so that we, we're saying, we're saying as an industry, there are these basic understandings that as a practitioner, we believe everyone should have. And maybe there's a lot of different, you know, and, and I do agree that there's a lot of different ways to go about getting it. But I think in terms of it being comprehensive and cohesive, looking looking to, to academia for so, practitioner solutions. And that doesn't mean becoming an mm-hmm. academic. It means, you know, understanding that perhaps academia does a pretty good job at educating I mean agree to disagree you know whatever but let's just say that that's you know that you you believe that then I think it's our job and it's why you know I'm involved with the program at Virginia Tech right it's an applied uh, it's an online applied behavior and welfare program it is for working professionals it's for trainers consultants um, and um, that is these are the things that I believe in because I I, I think it's, um, I don't know, I, I feel like it's unfair, you know, we also expect a trainer or a consultant to be able to read a scientific paper. I, I, I find them, you know, that they can be challenging, especially if I try to read a genetics paper, my goodness. And, I'm, and, and I have a PhD. So I think that, you know, we probably need to be kind of having these opportunities with, with science and learning about science in these sort of safer settings of, of maybe um, something sort of quasi-academic. Because I think on the internet is maybe not the safest place to learn. Um, I think it can, you know, both in terms of having questions and whether or not folks are receptive, people's interpretations of them. And I, and, and I think that that's, that's something that I think might be the, the way we bridge the gap between, between the two groups is that I think that sort of interest from practitioners to want more of that and academia to want to provide that. Because if we're doing something like dogs, and we want we want to have conferences like the Canine Science Symposium. We want to disseminate the science. We have to try to help meet people where they're at and help you know with understanding science. So I, I, I that's that's my answer. I don't know if it's a good one because I wasn't prepped, but you know, <laughs> which is my fault. But I think it was great. <laughs> I think 
I think that's a fantastic place to wrap up. I really appreciate okay. this conversation. Will you share where folks can find you and where they can find more information on the Canine Science Symposium as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, so if you have questions about my work, you want to get a hold of me, my website is lisamgunter.com and you can find all my papers there and more about me. But what's more interesting is to go over to our Canine Science Symposium page, which is caninesciencesymposium.com. And we have registration links uh, there. Um, if you want to join us either on on Zoom or in person. Um, We're pretty excited about the in-person part because um, not only do you get kind of access to our deep dives, which are, these are afternoon talks that are juicy and fun, um, but we also have this year an emerging scientist uh, session, which is what Sarah was sort of um, alluding to. And um, that is, uh, we're doing this for the first time where we have graduate students, postdocs, folks that are just completing studies, um, doing a poster session and attendees um, can chat with them, talk about their work, both of their work, and see, you know, what I'm excited about is ways in which we can collaborate. Um, So a lot of kind of cool ways to connect with colleagues um, and have these talks in a space that I think is, um, is made for it. So yeah, so that's, that's, that's my plug. (laughs) Really, really exciting. Um, I hope that a few of the listeners will run over there either in per I would love to go in person I unfortunately have a different obligation or you would I probably would be there um (laughs) but I love that there's a virtual option too so everybody can go if they would like Mm -hmm. and we will link all of that for everyone in the notes thank you so much Lisa for doing this with me today yeah it was a lot of fun thanks so much for having me thanks for listening I hope you'll rate review and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.